Welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. It's me, Amaka. As always, I hope those who are under the sound of my voice that are listening are doing well. And as always, I'm sending love and support to anyone who may be having a tougher time right now. As far as things go with me, I'm doing pretty well. I just came back from a long weekend trip with my husband. He and I decided to take a few days and get out of New York. So I am home now, getting ready to start my work week, trying to get in that frame of mind. But what was priority for myself after coming home was you know, producing the podcast and getting it recorded because I need to edit it and post it in less than 48 hours. (laughs) So yeah, I am happy to be back and talking to you guys. As like I said, as far as things are going for me, they're going pretty well. Things are getting a little bit busier for me. If you listen to my Happy New Year episode, I mentioned that I'm starting a new job, not leaving my old one, but just adjusting my schedule so that I can accommodate both positions. I started it last week, had an orientation slash shadow day with a colleague of mine who has been at the organization that I will be joining for several years. So they are obviously well versed in the processes of what goes on as a provider there. So I spent the day with them kind of seeing what they do and pretty much learning what my role will be. So that was good. And I will be having a second shadow day tomorrow. And then Wednesday, I will start to kind of be on my own a little bit more. So a little nervous about that, but not really, you know, when it comes to new jobs. One thing that has served me well is just the perspective of you kind of just have to get your feet wet, always ask questions, don't be scared to talk, don't be scared to let people know what you don't know, because then you open the door for gaining knowledge, you know, and you have to start from somewhere, you have to be a beginner for, you know, you have to be a beginner, period, even though I am, I don't think I'm technically considered a new grad provider anymore because I just, this this month is one year um, practicing as a nurse practitioner. So that's pretty amazing. And I can definitely see how I've grown in my position so far from the beginning to now. But, you know, I'm still in the grand scheme of things in terms of career trajectory. I'm still very much in the beginning and, you know, I I need to kind of still have that frame of mind to a degree, especially with starting a new position. I'm going to be dabbling a little bit more in a population subset that I don't usually see on a regular basis. So that's a point of learning that will be new for me. And just with that alone, I need to be open to feedback. I need to be open to answers to the questions that I have. I need to be open to ans- to asking questions and not feeling embarrassed or, you know, what have you, especially since I'm dealing with people, I'm dealing with medications, I'm dealing with diagnoses. So the more information that I'm able to learn and gather, you know, the better. 
and it'll ultimately make me a better provider. So that's the approach I'm taking with this new job, you know, take it slow, learn as much as I can, ask questions, write down notes, write down everything, you know, and just have a positive perspective. Things went really well on my first day last week. The people that I'll ultimately be working with are very nice. Um, And that's always, you know, something that you're not quite sure of and can be a point of nervousness. But everything went well. So I'm looking forward to continuing to learn and, you know, see how I ultimately will fit and grow in this role that um, is new for me. So yeah, say all that to say pretty much that things are getting a little bit busier. Um, I will be working a little bit more. I personally have some financial goals that I want to meet this year. And, you know, adding an additional stream of income in the form of another job is definitely going to help me get there. So, you know, that's kind of what's on my mind long term over the next few months to a year. What else is going on with me? Outside of that, work is my main focus right now. So I think, you know, we can just kind of dive into what I wanted to discuss today. Oh, before we before we do that, I have decided that I'm going to add another segment to the podcast, which I'm very excited about. It is going to be the last thing that I do at the end of an episode before closing it out. So what I would like to begin doing on each episode is sharing a journal prompt. And, you know, I'm a like, this is not news <laughs> for anyone who has even maybe listened to one or two episodes. I have shared ad nauseum how big of a proponent I am um, for writing down feelings and emotions and writing down, you know, anything that has to do with you and how you feel in your life and journaling pretty much, whether it's audio journals or written journals or, you know, what have you. So I don't know, this idea came to me and I was like, why not add a short journal prompt segment to each episode? Obviously, no one is obligated (laughs) to complete the journal prompt, but at the very least, it is something that will hopefully cause you to pause and take a minute to kind of just think about, let it simmer, let it marinate. You know, maybe you have the opportunity to write down your response to the prompt on pen and paper. Maybe you have a minute or two to respond via a voice note, you know, that no one but yourself would hear. Or maybe you don't do anything. Maybe you hear the voice note, excuse me, maybe you hear the journal prompt and, you know, you think about it and you go about your day, but at least it's always here. It's always going to be in the episode if you ever want to go back to it. And I'll make sure I put a timestamp, you know, in case that's something that you find you want to refer back to. So I'm excited to do this. I have quite a few journal prompts already that I will be drawing from with every episode. And if you 
feel compelled to share with me your response to the journal prompt, please do. Oh my God, that would be so amazing. If you want to just share it with me and you don't want it shared with the podcast, you know, please let me know. But if it's something you would be open to sharing, I will read it on the podcast. So yeah, very excited to get that started. So I think I'll just dive into ultimately what the main topics of the episode are based off of what you see the title of the episode being. So over the holiday break, I think I mentioned this on my Happy New Year episode. I watched quite a few TV shows over the break. I had the time, you know, it's time to relax and chill. So I was like, okay, what's good? What's good on TV? What's good on these streaming services? And I had been hearing a lot about The Best Man, the final chapters. I am not, there's like, I feel like there are levels to fandom when it comes to this whole franchise with The Best Man. You have The Best Man movies, and then you have like The Best Man holiday. Um, You have like the most recent movies over the past maybe five or so years. And then you have the series that came out on Peacock, I believe. So I re-downloaded the Peacock streaming service and I watched the whole series, I think, over the course of a day or two. And I really enjoyed it. And I could not have anticipated kind of breaking down some pieces of the series in an episode, but I really wanted to highlight a few things from that series. So it centers around a group of, I would say, late 40s, like early to late 40s. Let's just call it a group of Black men and women who are in their 40s, maybe even early 50s. And they have all taken different walks of life, but one way or another have all kind of stayed connected. A lot of them within the TV show live, you know, close enough to where they can kind of see each other pretty often. And there are a lot of amazing Black actors and actresses in this series Morris Chestnut, Neil Long, Tate Diggs, Sanaa Lathan, Terrence Howard, Regina Hall, Nicole Laurie Parker, um, Harold Perrineau, like so many people that you would recognize from other movies and TV shows. I just wanted to highlight what I thought was something that is not often talked about, but I feel like is becoming more of a topic of conversation lately because I have seen some discussions around it. I've seen some articles written around it about how men struggle with friendships, adult friendships, and they struggle with making friends. They struggle with showing emotion in their friendships. A lot of times male friendships are centered around sports and talking about women and cars and what have you it could be it could be weird and even feel embarrassing for them to dig deeper in a way that a lot of times female friends are able to do without feeling uncomfortable and I've even heard that women are better off oftentimes than men because 
we have practiced more the ability to be emotional in our friendships and kind of connect in that way with other women. Whereas men have had a much harder time doing this for a much longer time. So with watching this series, I really appreciated how the men, you know, Morris Chestnut, who plays Lance, the football player, Tay Diggs, who plays Harper Stewart, he, Harper Stewart, he's the writer. Terrence Howard plays Quentin Spivey. He in the series is like a hotel heir. Like his father founded this chain of really like beautiful, expensive luxury hotels. And he is, you know, poised to take over the business. And then you have Harold Perrineau, who plays Merch. He is, I believe, the principal of a an academic academy in Harlem, if I'm remembering correctly. So they all have different walks of life, you know, but they've all been able to stay in touch. And for as long as they've been friends, they've been able to figure out how to dig a little deeper with each other. It doesn't mean that they don't disagree. It doesn't mean that they don't have fights. I mean, the whole thing with Tate Diggs's character, Harper Stewart, and then Morris Chestnut's character, Lance, with his wife who passed away, and Harper, I believe, slept with her before she passed away, like decades prior. Um, and I think this was one of the focal points of the original Best Man movie. So they have had their their issues within their friendships, but I really love how they highlighted the fact that they could show emotion with each other out, you know, apart from anger, because anger is an emotion that is societally acceptable among men to show. But when it comes to sadness, when it comes to feelings of betrayal, when it comes to disappointment, when it comes to loneliness, when it comes to regret, feelings like this, men have a harder time showing to other men. And it can leave them in a place where they are not able to process them in a healthy way because they don't have that camaraderie. They don't have that social support that women often have. And, you know, it can leave them worse off. So that's something that I loved to see in the series. I remember particularly there was a scene where this was after the movie had premiered for Harper's book and different people were playing different characters of the men and the women. And Merch's character was not portrayed in Merch's opinion in a way that he thought was respectful. So I remember there was a scene where Terrence Howard's character Quentin and Harold Perrineau's character Merch were walking down the street and I don't know what prompted Merch to break down but he got emotional and he just kind of shared with Quentin what his issue was in terms of his portrayal of his character in the movie and he really like told him how he felt and he broke down and he was crying 
that's one thing that I really appreciated in the series. At some point in the series, every man physically cried. Like they showed that emotion, regardless of whatever emotion that was, whether it was like disappointment or sadness or regret or what have you. I know that Lance at a point cried, Merch at a point cried, Tay Diggs, Harper Stewart at a point cried, Quentin, I believe he was crying when he was arguing with his grandfather. Excuse me. He was crying when he was arguing with his father about, you know, the future of the company and his father's health. So, you know, there were different points in where each each man was moved to physical emotion, like showing how they felt through tears. And I thought that that was so moving to see because men in general have a hard time showing emotion through crying. Not to talk of black men, there is an added layer when it comes to seeing black men cry that I think as a black woman really hits me hard, you know, because of so much that they go through that they just kind of internalize and can't really let out. And then they don't even feel like they have a safe space to let it out. So I don't know whose idea it was when it came to producing this show to actually have this be a theme, but I really appreciate it because it makes it less unusual. It makes it less abnormal or atypical to see black men cry because crying is something that we're made to do. It's a a means of releasing stress. It's a means of releasing tension. I know sometimes I will try. (laughs) I'm a crier. (laughs) I'm a crier. And I used to kind of be ashamed of it, but I kind of let that go because I have found that it is a form of catharsis for me. And I am pretty sure I'm not the only one who feels this way out there. Like there's something about, you know, kind of letting your emotion out in that way and then having it physically manifest through tears. It releases something and then oftentimes I'll speak for myself, I feel lighter. I almost feel like my, I almost feel like whatever fog I was in has kind of cleared. And I almost feel like I have a means of moving forward now because I have kind of cleared the emotional cloud in a way. And I'm not sitting in it anymore. I'm not kind of dwelling in it in that way anymore. And I wish more people would use it. You don't have to cry in public, you know, if even if it is just being in your personal private space. And if you feel the urge, just let it out. You know, you might be surprised how you feel after that. So applying this to men and how they deal with their emotions and not really seeing crying as a way of dealing with them. I don't know if I have many men who listen to this podcast, but if I do, I really want to encourage you to consider that as a means of being able to appropriately handle your emotion and being able to move through 
difficult emotional states because crying is there for a reason. It happens for a reason. And I know for myself, I feel better and I feel like I can move on to the next thing or what have you once that thing once once I've been able to let the emotions out in that way so as someone who cries (laughs) I loved so much seeing men cry in the show and I loved so much seeing black men cry and I feel like the best man um, caters a lot to women, but I feel like a, a a good amount of men probably watch it too because men are a huge point of the show. So I hope that there are men out there who saw this and I hope it touched them and I hope that it made them feel like they could cry when they need to and I hope it made them feel like they are not weird or whatever stereotype or whatever negative conception, misconception that may come from men crying. I hope they don't feel that. So I really felt strongly that I should mention it because I'm an emotional person and it's a double-edged sword, but I wouldn't change anything about myself when it comes to that. And I feel like men and black men could benefit from being more in touch with their emotions, even though you kind of have to develop that tool, which could be, that is a whole other conversation that we really don't have time to dive into today. But, um, you know, one first step, one small step could be just if you feel the urge to cry because you have been touched emotionally or something has impacted you emotionally, don't try to keep it down. Don't try to hold it in. Just let it out and see how you feel, you know, after you've been able to let yourself go in that way. So yeah, I really, I didn't want to spend too much time on the show in this episode, but I wanted to highlight that I really appreciated how they showcased solid male friendships you know them having the social support of each other even if they were kind of at odds at times but they always came back together you know they always had each other's back and um i loved the example of that in the show and i loved the examples of all four men showing emotion through tears at one point or another so if these thoughts up to this point have not <laughs> expressed how I feel about this show, um, I definitely recommend it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it particularly so from episode three on because the first two episodes, they were, I believe, I forget what country they were in. Was it Jamaica? I don't remember, but it was kind of like an offsite type of episode with Quentin's wedding and then that kind of um, went up in flames <laughs> and then they went back to New York and then the show really picks up from there so I heard that I heard some people saying that they couldn't really get into it but like it gets really good from episode three I would say so um yeah I recommend it if you were thinking of watching the show I would say go ahead um you know everybody has different tastes but if you are fans of shows like this with like an ensemble black cast that come from different walks of life and have a lot of issues that, you know, adults in their 40s and 50s have, I think you would really enjoy it. 
So yeah, with that, I want to turn to discussing the book Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And this is going to be part one of the discussion. I'm going to round it out on the next episode. It's a big book. It is... I think just about 320 pages. So for some people that might not be a lot, but I think I say it's a big book because it's dense in terms of there's just a lot that you can take away from it. And I really, really, I really, really, really wanted to discuss this book in one episode, but I kept reading and reading and reading. And I was like, there's no way. There's no way. Like, unless I wanted to devote a two hour episode onto this book, I wouldn't be able to discuss everything I want to talk about in one episode. So I'm just going to divide it up. It's okay. And, you know, there's really so many directions you can go when it comes to discussion with this book. I will start by just saying, so Glennon Doyle is a woman who is in a same-sex marriage right now, but she was previously married to a man and had two children, two girls with a man, but over some time realized that that marriage was not where she was happy. And she met this woman and sparks flew and she felt alive in a way that she hadn't before. So she ultimately ended her marriage and pursued this relationship with, I think her name is Amy Wambach. I'm going to do a quick Google. Yeah, Amy Wambach is Glennon Doyle's wife. And that's who she ultimately ended her marriage to now pursue a relationship and now new marriage with. So that is a huge focal point of this book. But I think she touches on so much more just about societal expectations of women and how that begins from as young as, I don't know, three, five years old, and ultimately what it takes to free yourself from that and how hard it is because American society, I will speak to specifically because that is the that is the society I live in. American society from your single years as a person on this earth. And when I say single, I mean in terms of number. <laughs> I should probably like be specific. As as young as preschool age, you start to internalize what American society and culture, you know, kind of lauds as the ideal woman and kind of um, prioritizes and praises as the ideal woman in terms of appearance, in terms of personality, in terms of characteristics. And, you know, she talks about that and she talks about how, you know, she is working through those realities with her two daughters that she is raising and um is it does she have two girls or a son and a daughter she has I know she has at least one child at least one one daughter I believe she might even have two daughters and a son but as far as her female children go She is working through those realities and trying to raise them in a way where they don't feel limited by them. 
So like I said, there's a lot that I could touch on in this book, but I think I'm going to help focus the conversation based on specific quotes. And I'm going to start with a quote on page eight in the book. So she has a lot of chapters in the book. I don't know if they are numbered. They're not, but the book is divided into parts. So it has three parts and each part has a series of little chapters. So in terms of quotes, the first one that I want to highlight is on page eight and it is in the chapter I'm looking right now. It's in the chapter apples. So, oh no, excuse me. That is the wrong page. The quote is on page six and is in the chapter Sparks. So here it is. I looked hard at my faith, my friendships, my work, my sexuality, my entire life and asked, how much of this was my idea? Do I truly want any of this? Or is this what I was conditioned to want? Which of my beliefs are my own creation and which are programmed into me? How much of who I've become is inherent and how much was just inherited? How much of the way I look and speak and behave is just how other people have trained me to look and speak and behave? How many of the things I've spent my life chasing are just dirty pink bunnies? Who was I before I became who the world told me to be? So I have talked about this a little bit, I feel like in earlier episodes, where, you know, a lot of my 20s was deconstructing beliefs that I grew up with. Because as you get older, you know, I think a lot of this happens too, if you have the opportunity to live by yourself and get to know who you are truly outside of the environment with family, parents, siblings, whoever, you start to think about beliefs and ideas that you grew up with. And you wonder, do I believe this because I truly believe this? Or do I believe this because my family believed this? Do I believe this because I truly believe this or do I believe this because this is the belief that my parents instilled in me. So I went through that and I still go through that. I feel like that's like a lifelong journey because you're always learning. You're always questioning. You're always trying to determine what is true for you. And that can change at any moment. So this journey started for me in my early 20s. And I have come away realizing that a lot of what I believed when I was younger was because my family believed it or my parents believed it and they thought it was the best thing for me to believe too. And maybe it was at the time, but it doesn't really serve me as an adult now. It doesn't really serve me in the environment that I live in. It doesn't really serve me as the 33-year-old woman I am today. And, you know, with age and growth and and evolution in thoughts and beliefs, you kind of let others that you grew up with wear away and you develop and create 
what is true to you and what you have found is real for you. So I feel like this quote kind of just ties all of what I just set up in a bow. Like what, you know, kind of just posing the question out to those who might be listening. What are you under the belief of that you grew up with? And is that something you believe now? And if it's not something you believe now, that is okay. Is there something, is there a new belief that could maybe replace what you grew up believing? What are ideas that you grew up believing to be true or kind of seeing as the way of the world? Is that something that is still the case? And if that is something that needs time deconstructing, I would definitely encourage taking the time to do that because embarking on that journey for myself was scary. And I feel like it can be scary because a lot of ideas and beliefs that we grow up with are tied to our identities and who we know ourselves to be as people. But I wouldn't change anything because I like who I am now. And I like the identity that is tied to the ideas and beliefs I hold now to be true for me in this present day. And I kind of add that caveat because that could change tomorrow because with new experiences with things that change with the ebbs and flows of life things that are true today may not be true tomorrow you know and I feel like in within the journey of deconstructing ideas and beliefs you also have to be open to the continual or the continuous deconstructing over the course of your life because things, ideas, beliefs, perspectives change as life goes on and as you experience new and different things. So I really appreciated this quote and I thought it was worth mentioning on the episode. So I'm going to move on to page 75. That's the next quote that I wanted to highlight. And that is in the chapter. That's in the chapter, let it burn. So it's a long one. So bear with me. Page 75. I burned the memo that defined selflessness as the pinnacle of womanhood. But first I forgave myself for believing that lie for so long. I had abandoned myself out of love. They'd convinced me that the best way for a woman to love her partner, family, and community was to lose herself in service to them. In my desire to be of service, I did myself and the world a great disservice. I've seen what happens out in the world and inside our relationships when women stay numb, obedient, quiet, and small. Selfless women make for an efficient society, but not a beautiful, true, or just one. When women lose themselves, the world loses its way. We do not need more selfless women. What we need right now is more women who have detoxed themselves so completely from the world's expectations that they are full of nothing but themselves. What we need are women who are full of themselves. A woman who is full of herself knows and trusts herself enough to say and do what must be done. She lets the rest burn. I burned the memo presenting responsible motherhood as martyrdom. I decided that the call of motherhood is to become a model, not a martyr. I unbecame a mother slowly dying in her children's name and became a responsible mother. 
one who shows her children how to be truly alive. So this quote reminded me of the letter to myself that I wrote to myself on my 30th birthday when I bought my new journal. And pretty much the long and short of the letter to myself was to always put myself first. And, you know, that sounds selfish. And, you know, you could also kind of say, you know, I'm being full of myself by doing that, which she says in the quote. But what I mean by putting myself first is making sure my cup is always full. Because you can't give from an empty cup. And if you try to do that, you're only going to burn yourself out. And you know, you're not going to be the best person that you can be for yourself and for others, but more so for you. I'm, I'm talking more so about you, you know, the woman, the individual whose cup needs to be filled. And how motherhood, the the pinnacle of motherhood, the the brand of motherhood that is so much admired is the type of motherhood that sacrifices themselves for their children. I think that this tide is turning a little bit. I feel like the martyrdom type of motherhood is kind of moving away with the older generation and the millennial generation and the generations after us are seeing that that type of mothering really withers away when it comes to the person they really can become a shell of themselves because they are giving 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 and it gets to a point where all they can identify when it comes to themselves is being a wife of this person or being the mother of these children. And they ultimately are not able to pinpoint what their personality is anymore or what they love to do or what their hobbies are or, you know, who they were before they were children, who they were before they had children. So I appreciate that she talks about this in the book because as someone who anticipates becoming a mother one day I think about the examples I've seen in my life and there are examples that are consistent with the type of motherhood that centers martyrdom and pretty much giving up your life for your kids and I know that I know myself and I know I have ambitions. I know I have goals. I know I have things that I want to do that are outside of motherhood. And I know that I would not be happy, you know, kind of take the children out of the equation, you know, whether they're there or not. I would not be happy with myself if I gave myself to something else so much so to the point that I lost who I was and I could not, I was not able to recognize myself. I think that happens with a lot of women who become mothers. And I think that lends to 
the sadness that they feel and the emptiness that they might feel despite the joy and love that comes from their children. I think a lot of mothers, at least from the examples that I have grown up with and seen just in society, like because you abandoned the things that made you happy because before you became a mother, you put so much pressure on those children to be your source of happiness and your source of pride and joy. And it is, in my opinion, unfair to those kids. And there is a quote that Glennon also writes in the book. I think it's on page 128. Let me go there now, because she's pretty much just saying what I'm saying right now in terms of putting so much pressure on your kids to be your source of happiness because you pretty much gave up your whole life to have them. Let me go there now. Yes, page 128. It's in the chapter eyes. What a terrible burden for children to bear to know that they are the reason their mother stopped living. What a terrible burden for our daughters to bear, to know that if they choose to become mothers, this will be their fate too. Because if we show them that being a martyr is the highest form of love, that is what they will become. They will feel obligated to love as well as their mothers loved. After all, they will believe they have permission to live only as fully as their mothers allowed them to live. So Glennon in the book talks about how the daughters, particularly see their mothers and they see how they pretty much gave up their whole life for them. And they are their main example of what motherhood is like. So if they themselves ultimately become a mother, the example that was put forth to them growing up is what they're going to see as their blueprint. And ultimately, the cycle continues, you know, they would abandon who they are, they will kind of disconnect from their personality to give everything of themselves to their kids at the detriment of who they are. But is that, does that ultimately benefit the children? You know, Um, is that, is that, is that an example? Is that the best example to set for our kids? You know, What message is sent to children when they see that their mother's relationship revolves or their mother's lives revolve around them? And people may have different answers and perspectives to that question. But I guess I ask that from a place of hopefully becoming a mother whose children see her as a a dynamic human being. You know, and I know this is easier said than done. I am not a mother yet, but, you know, peop, you know, I can aspire to be a certain type. And if I were to aspire to be a certain type of mother, I would aspire to be a dynamic mother, someone who loves their children and shows that love and is always there for her kids in the way that they need her. And, you know, they know that. They know that I love them and they feel that love. But at the same time, they see that I love myself and I show myself love in the way of, you know, doing things that make me happy, engaging in my hobbies, taking time for myself and just prioritizing myself 
in a way that benefits me and ultimately benefits my children because I am making it a point to keep my cup full so that I can give to them. You know, um, in order to give to the people around me who I love, I need to be able to have something to give. And in order to have something to give, I need to be able to pour into myself. So, you know, when I think about the future and the type of mom I want to be, I think of this type of mom. I think of the type of mom that Glennon talks about in the book, who gives up her whole life. And I don't want that to be me. And this is by no means an indictment to mothers who have kind of found themselves in this position. But I, I have seen in my, you know, in the examples I've witnessed, I've seen how it can really take away from that woman, and they can have a hard time connecting to themselves. And I really make it a point to always check with myself and kind of turn inward and see how I feel and how I'm doing and what I might need. And I really, it, it really makes me sad at the idea of not really being able to do that anymore because I have to live up to this expectation of pretty much dying to myself and giving up my whole life because I have children. So I really wanted to highlight those couple of quotes. And I believe there is one more that I wanted to just mention quickly. This is on page 77. Oh, okay. So I'm going to end I'm going to end this segment with this quote, because I really, I think that's this describes ultimately how I aspire to live my life, regardless of whatever identity, you know, is true for me in that present moment. So this is also in chapter, in the chapter, Let It Burn, and it's on page 77. It's the last paragraph of the chapter. If I am living bravely, my entire life will become a million deaths and rebirths. My goal is not to remain the same, but to live in a way that each day, year and moment relationship, conversation and crisis is the material I used to become a truer, more beautiful version of myself. The goal is to surrender constantly who I just was in order to become who this next moment calls me to be. I will not hold on to a single existing idea, opinion, identity, story, or relationship that keeps me from emerging new. I cannot hold too tightly to any riverbank. I must let go of the shore in order to travel deeper and see farther, again and again and then again, until the final death and rebirth, right up until then. So I wanted to end this segment with this quote because really, this is what I aspire for every day, to not hold a single perspective or idea or belief for a second longer than it is true for me, and not hold on to it because it feels comfortable or because it feels safe. And to be brave enough to let go of whatever is no longer true to me from the second that that is the case, in order to allow space for change and growth 
and evolution in every single moment. Whether I am married, whether I am a mother, whether I am a professional, whether I am elderly, whether I am whatever, you know, there is no end date on change and evolution and growth as a person. There's only an end date if you decide that you're too old to change or you're too old to learn something new or you're too old to evolve or, you know, you're too far gone or whatever. I think that this quote is one of those quotes where you can kind of just put it on your wall and read it every day and have it be a reminder. You can always change your mind. You can always try something new. At any point, you can change the direction of your life. You can change the trajectory in which you are headed. And it's really only up to you. Glennon realized that her present situation, her marriage to her husband was not working for her. She was dying emotionally inside and she made a decision she changed her life. She course corrected, you know, she changed her trajectory. And now she is living a completely different life, happier than she could ever be. So I really just wanted to end this segment and ultimately the podcast on this note. I believe I said this as like a little nugget at the end of an episode last year, like, you can always change your life. You can always change your life in any moment, in any second. And changing your life does not mean waking up, jolting out of bed, selling your house and moving to another country. That doesn't have to be what it means. Changing your life can mean, I don't want to do this anymore. And this can be anything. It could be as small as, I don't want to spend all my time on social media, or I want to spend more time with myself. I want to um, connect with myself. Like changing your life can be seemingly small movements, seemingly small decisions that build and gain momentum. And then over the course of a period of time, You don't even recognize yourself because you are a completely different person. So I hope you guys enjoyed that discussion. This is part one. I'm going to round round out the discussion of Untamed on the next episode. And I am very excited to continue the conversation. With that, I'm going to end the podcast with the first journal prompt. And like I said, you don't have to like write down the answer or what have you, even if it just stirs a little bit more thought for a couple of minutes. I think it has done some good. So for today, I wanted to share this journal prompt. Does how you feel today align with what you know to be true? And I ask this because feelings come and go. And sometimes we give too much weight to feelings to the point where we act and behave and make decisions based on them being true, even though oftentimes they are not. 
someone who I follow on social media, Miley Teal, I learned this phrase from her, um, that feelings aren't facts. Feelings are not facts. Feelings can be so strong and so salient and so like, like they can grip you to the point where you feel like nothing else matters. But feelings come and go. You know, if you are able to detach yourself a little bit and just remind yourself that you feel this way, but instead of embodying the feeling, maybe seeing yourself as a vessel and where the feeling kind of comes and then it leaves, it allows you to have a little bit more control over what you might do when you're in that state. And feelings oftentimes are not aligned with what you know to be true. You may be feeling shitty, you may be having a bad day, but it doesn't mean you have a bad life, you know? Things like that. So I just wanted to put that journal prompt out there. And if it sparks some thoughts, if it sparks some, you know, response in the in the means of in the way of a journal entry or a voice note, please you know, kind of let that happen. Let it happen. Don't, don't procrastinate it. Don't say I'll do it later, unless you physically can't do it in the moment. But at the very least, if it allows you to kind of sit for a minute and just reflect, then I think that the prompt has done its job. So I'm coming up on an hour. I'm not quite sure how far or how long this episode be once I edit it down. But as always... Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed um, what I shared on this episode today. As always, if you want to reach out to me, please do email me at btbwpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to me on my social media handles. Please rate, please review on your preferred listening platform. If you ever want me to answer a question on the podcast in the form of like a Q&A segment, please send me the questions. If you guys have feedback you want to share with me that you want me to um, share on the podcast, please share that with me. Like I said in the beginning of the episode, if you actually respond to this journal prompt and you want to share it with me and you want me to share it on the podcast, I will. So just send it to me, whether it's in the form of a voice note or, you know, like a written response in an email. I'm totally open and I would be so happy to share it. So I'm looking forward to what I'm able to bring you guys this year, 2023, when it comes to the podcast. It has become a labor of love that has just kind of gotten bigger and bigger And I really appreciate every single one of you who decides to turn on an episode and listen to my voice. And if you get even just a little nugget that helps you through your day or helps you through life, then I've done my job. So again, thank you guys so much. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.